0: For the first time, we are in the middle of a series, uh, called Holding It Together in the book of Colossians. Um, and so if you have your Bible, if you want to turn to chapter 2 of Colossians, that's where we'll be starting in verse 16. And here's what I want to do today. I want to give you a little of a, a bit of a road map to where we are headed today. Uh, so today I want to talk about giant teddy bears. I want to talk about the NFL draft. I want to talk about angels. And I want to talk about what we as Christians should be known for. So a little bit of a roadmap for you of where we're going today. And I want to start with a fact about myself. And the fact, that fact is this. I love theme parks. Anybody else love theme parks? My people. The rest of you just know it's okay. Nobody's perfect. We all have our faults. I love theme parks. Uh, growing up in Denver, Colorado, every year my family would go to Elych Gardens, uh, the theme park in Denver, and I just have so many great childhood memories. I, I remember as a little kid going into the park and walking by like the big roller coasters and seeing that yardstick. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I'd be mean, like, someday. And then I remember the year I finally was tall enough for, like, all the rides, you know, and I walked up, and they measured me, and they're like, yep, you're tall enough, and I took a couple steps, and I was like, wait a minute, do I really want to do this? <laughs> but you're like, you're in too far at that point. You're like, all right, I guess I'm doing it. And it was terrifying, but it was also awesome. As I look, think back on, on favorite memories that I have, both as a, as a child and as an adult, um, I'll be honest, a lot of them are days at theme parks, and I am hopeful and optimistic that I'll be going to a theme park some point in the near future. I love everything about theme parks. I love the rides, the smell of the food, and even those games. Those games that are perfectly crafted to make them almost impossible to win, and yet they're made in such a way that you walk by them and you go, I could do that. You know what I'm talking about? And if you're newer to Northbrook, one thing you got to understand about me is I am a very competitive person. And so when I walk by those games, it takes everything in me not to go charging over and be like, I can do this. But I actually don't. I actually don't play the games typically because I know myself. And here's what I know. I know that if I go over and I start playing one of those games, I'm not leaving until I win. And then our theme park day just got a whole lot more expensive. But for the purposes of where we are headed today, as I was reading uh, the passage of Scripture for today, um, a, a story came to mind, a, a modern-day parable of sorts. And so, if you will, I want you to imagine with me that you uh, are at a theme park with a family, a, a dad and his family. It's a beautiful day. The park isn't too crowded. Everything's going wonderfully. And uh, early afternoon, uh, the dad's family decides to go on a ride that he doesn't want to go on. Uh, It's probably one of those spinny rides invented by the government to torture people and then sold to theme parks as a joke. You know what I'm talking about? Did I mention, I I love everything about theme parks except the spinny rides. I should probably throw that in. And so he says, no, you guys go without me. I'm I'm, I'm good. I'm going to wait. And uh, it's a long line. And so he's bored. And so he just starts to wander. And he makes his way over to some of the games. And while he's standing by the games, he notices a prize, a giant, big, adorable prize teddy bear. And in a moment of sheer dad brilliance, he thinks to himself, I need to win that for my daughter. I am going to be an awesome dad. I'm going to win that. I'm going to carry that thing around the theme park. And everywhere I go, people are going to say, there goes an awesome dad. At least that's what he tells himself. And so he goes over and the teddy bear happens to be at Jacob's ladder, the ladder game. Now, if you're not familiar with this game, we have a picture of it. It's so simple. You just walk up a ladder and you ring the bell. Again, that's not that hard, right? You just walk up the ladder, ring the bell. Now, you can't fall off the ladder, and the ladder can't flip over. Those are the only rules, basically. Um, And so uh, he goes over, and he pays. And the guy's like, you know, do you want the bundle pack, or do you want to just pay for one? He's like, it's only going to take me once, I'll pay for this once and get this over with. And so he pays for it, and he goes, and he makes it to the third rung. The ladder flips over. And he's like, all right, all right, that's that's okay, I I got this, you know— It's going to take a couple times. So he tries again, and he fails, and he tries again, and he fails, and he tries again, and he fails, and he tries again, and he fails. And at this point, it's not fun, but very necessary that he get that bear. (laughs) And so his wife texts and says, hey, we're done. Where should we meet you? And he says, I'll go, go on another ride. I'm going to be a little bit. So he tries again, and he fails. He tries again, and he fails. He goes and buys an overly priced bottle of water, comes back, tries again, fails. He's there for two hours, trying and failing. At this point, he is on a first-name basis with the attendant, Bill, knows all about his family. (laughs) A crowd begins to gather. He's in too deep to quit now. Phones are out. People are recording. Tries some more. Fails. Tries again. Fails. Finally, he gets farther than he ever has before, and a hush falls over the crowd. People are live streaming. He makes it to where he can almost reach out and ring the bell. Just then, his family happened to walk up and see dad on the ladder and come over to see what's going on. And as he reaches out for the bell, the ladder twists and he falls. I know. And he comes, and he walks down defeated. and his family comes over, and he sees his family. He's like, oh. And his wife comes up, and she's like, what in the world? Have you been here the past couple hours? And he's like, yeah, I just really, really wanted to— to win that giant teddy bear for our daughter. And before the daughter could say anything, his wife looks at it and she goes, uh, she already has that giant bear down in the basement. (laughs) What does that have to do with anything, John? It's a good question. So here it is. When it comes to the Christian life, we can all fall into the trap of trying to earn what we already have. When it comes to the Christian life, we can all—I don't care how spiritual you are in here, how long you've been a Christian— we can all wake up and try to climb a spiritual ladder instead of resting in what we already have from God. And when we do that, we not only miss out on the life we could be living, but we often wake up miserable instead of joyful in the spirit. We try to manufacture purpose by trying to earn God's favor or trying to be more spiritual than everybody else and make it up that ladder so we can look down on them. And we won't say it that way, but we try to climb a spiritual ladder instead of enjoying what we've already been given. So we come to our scripture today in the second chapter of Colossians. We find the early church in Colossae wrestling with what does it mean to live a life honoring to God? What does it look like day to day to live like God wants them to live? And Paul is writing to them. And I believe Paul's words to the church in Colossae, though written thousands of years ago, have a lot to say to all of us about how we are to live our day to day lives. And so we start again in Colossians 2 verse 16 going through verses 16 through 23. And so Colossians 2, starting in verse 16, we read these words. Therefore. Okay, let's stop right there. There are 213 words in Colossians two sixteen through 23 in the NIV. We're going to take them one word at a time. So we should be out of here by dinner. <laughs> Joking, but I do want to stop there because any time that you start a passage of Scripture and you see the word therefore, a question should come to mind. You know what the question is, Right? What is therefore, therefore? Why is Paul saying therefore? Paul is referring back to something he has previously said. And so when you start a portion of scripture and you see therefore or so, it's probably worth it to go back and figure out what the writer has just said because he's about to base everything that he's going to say on what he just said. So if we go back a little bit in chapter 2, we find that Paul is making a very important point. In verse 6, Paul says this, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him. Paul says, you received Christ Jesus as Lord, but you have a choice on if you're going to live your lives in Him or not. It's been given to you, you've received it, but now you've got to choose if you're going to live it out. Continuing on in verse 13. Paul says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. If that sounds familiar, we did read that in communion. Way to pay attention. Paul's point here at the beginning of the chapter is this. God has already done the work. God has forgiven our sins. He has canceled the debt that we owed. There's no condemnation. Paul says we are alive with Christ, that Christ is alive in us. And it's not based on anything we did. We didn't earn it. We didn't climb a ladder to get it. There were no bells ringing involved. It was a gift. So so now we get to choose to live our life in Christ. Essentially, Paul says the God of the universe's spirit lives in you and you didn't earn it, but you do get to make the choice to live like it. So that is what Paul has just said. So now we come to our portion of Scripture. Paul continues, he says, Therefore, based on that, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. All right, let's stop right there. What is Paul talking about? Anyone been to a religious festival lately? New moon celebrations, anyone? Religious observance of the Sabbath day from sundown to the next sundown, no work of any kind, no preparing meals, no cleaning, no? What is Paul talking about? Paul's talking about Old Testament rituals, holy days, special days set aside to honor God, to draw close to God, to be aware of God, and in some cases to try to earn the favor of God. And Paul writes, and he essentially says to them, these things were a shadow of what was to come. They were a system that were put in place, and, they, and there, there were some good things about them. These religious days, these observances, like there, there were some positive things about them, but they were not the real thing. They were a shadow of what was to come. Now, we're all familiar with shadows, right? I can see my shadow right now. A shadow gives you kind of an idea of the real thing, but it is in, by no means the real thing. And so Paul writes to them and he says, these religious holy days, these the, the strict observance of certain things, they are a shadow of the new reality and the new reality is Christ. And essentially Paul says, don't let anyone judge you because you aren't playing their game. Don't play their game. You're, you're, you aren't trying to earn what you already have, a personal relationship with a creator who is with you and for you. Now, it may be easy for us to look at this and go, yeah, no problem. Haven't been to any religious festivals lately, no new moon celebrations lately, no religious observance of the Sabbath. I, I'm good. But the truth is, our new moon celebrations just look a little bit different 2,000 years later. Our new moon celebrations, our religious festivals may look like coming to church on a Sunday. Our religious observance of the Sabbath may be volunteering or serving or doing anything that we do with an attempt to bring God closer to us or to make, make it a spiritual day or, or, or to try to earn favor from God. Because again, what Paul is essentially saying here is in the Old Testament, you had an occasional holy day. Now through Christ, every day is holy. Every day is spiritual. Because Christ dwells in you. Before you went to the temple to worship God and you had special days. Now the Spirit has come to you. Christ dwells inside you. And now every day is holy. So when you drive to church, that's a holy day. But when you wake up Monday and you go to work, that's a holy day too. And on Saturday when you wake up and you go to your kid's soccer game, that's a holy day too. And when you serve in your local community, that's a holy moment but so is everything else that you do because Christ dwells in you and that is your reality. We cannot earn more of God's love and goodness and presence in our lives and we slip into chasing shadows whenever we attempt to earn something from God that we already have or we begin to separate secular and spiritual. Everything is spiritual in God's kingdom. And there's nothing to earn. The NFL draft was this past weekend. Uh, For those of you that know me, you know I'm a huge Denver Broncos fan, having grown up in Denver. Pretty excited about the Broncos draft, as you should be, because the Broncos drafted a local boy from Hartford, Quinn. And so I'm super excited about that. But regardless of how you feel about football or the NFL draft, I, I, I think you would find the NFL draft at least a little fascinating. It's fascinating to think that these players, their whole lives are analyzed by every team. Everything they've ever done, anything they've ever, both on the field and off the field, anything they've ever tweeted, any, what they've told, like, like friends and confidence, everything is studied and analyzed both on and off the field before a team chooses to pick them. And the difference between being taken in the first round and, and taken later on the draft is pretty small when you think about it. NFL teams will even bring in uh, players on a normal year to something called the NFL Combine, where they will dissect everything about these players. They'll have them run a 40-yard dash to see how fast they can run, and they'll have them jump as high as they can and jump as far as they can. They'll have them lift weights, and everything they do is analyzed and dissected and compared against the other players. It's a lot of pressure. And again, the margin for error is just so small. For example, let's just take one area of the NFL Combine, the 40-yard dash, which is one of the favorites of the NFL Combine. It's basically how fast a player can run 40 yards. And since 2006, the average 40-yard dash time for the wide receivers who participated in the Combine and were taken in the first round, so the best of the best wide receivers, the average time was 4.44 seconds for the 40-yard dash. Now, that's fast. If you can imagine it, They're booking it. But here's what's crazy. When you go all the way to the seventh round, so we go from the first rounders who are going to make a lot of money and these starters right away to the seventh round, these guys are just trying to make the team. First round to seventh round, the the players drafted in the seventh round ran the 40-yard dash on average. What would you think? Maybe like a half second slower, a full second slower? On average, they ran the 40-yard dash 4.53 seconds. Less than a tenth of a second slower than the first rounders. Now obviously there's a lot of different factors being drafted as wide receivers. Speed is only one of them. But you see how competitive it is for these guys. There is so much pressure. And then you finally get to draft weekend and I love watching with technology having all these cameras in their homes. I love watching when they get drafted and picked by a team. And they're celebrating, they're with their family and grandma's off in the corner dancing and they're crying. And it's fascinating to me to see who gets the first hug. You ever notice this? You got, like, the fiancé, you got mom, you got grandma, you got dad, and they get drafted, and it's like, all right, who's going to get the first hug? Like, do they rock, rock, paper, scissors for it before the draft? Or like, I digress. But anyway, it's so exciting to see them get drafted. So much emotion. They're so excited. John, what does this have to do with Colossians? Okay, here we go. Some of us are living in the mindset, inadvertently, That every day we wake up and we participate in God's combine. And we run a 40-yard dash trying to convince God we're worthy for him to pick us. And we feel this weight to show God that that we are spiritual enough, are good enough for him to be with us, to be for us. And maybe, yeah, we've grown up in church and we know that it's a gift and he's with us and we didn't earn it. But, but the way that we're living our lives, the way that we actually wake up and live our lives is demonstrating that every day we wake up and we go to God's combine and we try to impress God with how fast we can run. When reality is that every day is not the NFL combine. Every day for followers of Christ is the draft party. And we wake up, I wake up, and we go... God picked this guy. God picked me. I didn't earn it. I didn't have to do anything to impress him, but he picked me. And his spirit lives in me. And now it's not that I have to go and produce for him and climb some spiritual ladder, but rather now I get to go play for God and be a part of his kingdom. Only it's not like the pressure that NFL players have playing football. It's more like the pressure of like a third grader playing YMCA football where you know no matter what happens, you're getting a juice box and a fruit snack at the end of the game. (laughs) And so now you just get to go out and live it. So we go to church and we serve others and we attempt to bring God's kingdom down to earth, not because we're trying to get God to come close to us or impress Him. We're not climbing a spiritual ladder. No, no, we've, we've made it. Not because of anything we did, but because of Christ's spirit that dwells in us. And so now we get to be a part of what God is doing in the world, not because we have to, but because of God's goodness shown to us. Our reality is Christ and we get to live out of the goodness of God. Every day's a draft party. So let me ask you as we finish up this first verse, thought. Do you live your life trying to earn something from God that you already have? Yeah, maybe you know all the right answers. It's a gift. I don't have to earn it. But as you wake up tomorrow, will you be in NFL combine 40-yard dash impress God mode, spiritual ladder mode, Or will you wake up with the refreshing sense that God is with you and for you, and now you could be a part of what his kingdom is up to in the world? Continuing on, Paul says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great details about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. All right, what in the world are we talking about now, Paul? Worship of angels? What, what is going on? There was a group of people in the church in Colossae that worship and prayed to angels rather than God. But they couched this worship in extreme humility, it's just that they weren't worthy to pray directly to God. They, they were humbling themselves. And so they decided they would pray to angels rather than God out of extreme humility. And, and from that, they were saying that God was blessing them with these visions of angels and all these crazy, wonderful things. And they were so spiritual, but also so humble. And Paul isn't impressed. Not impressed at all. He says that is a false humility. He says they've lost their connection. Why, why is Paul so frustrated with this group of people? Because angels had become the middlemen between them and God. And essentially, Paul says, God didn't come down to earth and walk among us and die among us so we could pretend we still aren't worthy to have a personal relationship with him. We don't need the middlemen. They were trying to substitute angels for a personal relationship with their creator. Now today, we we don't worship angels, right? I don't know anyone that's substituted an angel for Personal relationship with God. But if we're not careful, we can inadvertently create our own middlemen to have a relationship with God for us. We find our own angels. People who will become the middlemen between us and God. In the church in America, you know who I think we turn into angels? Our religious leaders. No one's chuckling at that one. (laughs) Our religious leaders can become our middlemen. I mean, I do look pretty angelic, right? (laughs) Hear my heart on this, at the risk of being misunderstood. I, I know we don't pray to our religious leaders, but we can fall into the trap of expecting them to do the work of communing with God for us. We want them to go into the presence of God and come out and give us our marching orders instead of sitting in prayer and developing a personal relationship with God ourselves. We can put our religious leaders on a pedestal. We listen to their podcasts, we go online and watch their sermons, we read their books, and hear me now, I love technology. I love that I can go online and listen to great men and women of faith all over the world and and hear what they have to say and grow in my relationship with God because of them. But there is a danger, and the danger is our relationship with God is replaced by relationships with our religious leaders. Our time alone with God is replaced by time with our favorite Christian speaker or writer. And I'll be honest, I've been, I've been guilty of this. I've grown up listening and watching and reading and following some amazing men and women who have a deep desire to lead the church and a gifting to do so. I've read their books. I've listened to their podcasts. I've gone to their conferences. I've watched their sermons online. But here's how I realized something was amiss. When some of them fell off the pedestal, when news broke, Secrets were revealed that they weren't as righteous or as good as I thought they were. Secret sins were exposed. I felt this pain. And part of that was probably healthy. Part of that was probably a, a sadness that the name of Jesus had been tainted by their actions. But, but part of that, there was something else going on. Part of it was I had placed them on a pedestal they were never meant to be. And in their falling, it felt like a little part of God had fallen with them because I had made them the middleman between me and God. Anytime a religious leader falls and you feel like God has fallen, it's a good sign that you have made that religious leader the middleman between you and God. We can become followers of men instead of followers of Christ. That's why Paul says in his letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 1, one of the first things he says to them is basically, what is going on? Some of you say you follow Apollos. Some of you say you follow Paul. Some of you say you follow Peter. Newsflash, you don't follow any of them. You follow Christ. Today, substitute your favorite celebrity preacher or local teacher. You don't follow them. You follow Christ. Friends, angels are pretty amazing beings. From what we read in scripture, they're majestic. They look far better than this outfit. I can tell you that. But Paul says even angels did not take the place of a personal relationship with God for the church in Colossae. And on my best day, I am definitely no angel. Hear my heart on this. I take my job as a shepherd of the church very seriously. I take my job as a teacher of scripture very seriously. I take my job as a pastor of souls very seriously. But I am confident in this. My words, and I would humbly submit to you any religious leader's words, do not replace time spent alone with your heavenly father. And the act of cultivating a personal relationship with God. On my best day, and I would say any religious leader's best day, we can carefully study the scripture and share what we believe God is speaking to us in the hope that it will help you as you grow in your personal relationship with God. If we're not careful, we can make religious leaders shadows of the real thing a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So as we wrap up this point, my question for you is, as you look at your life, have you inadvertently allowed a religious leader to replace a personal relationship with God? Has time alone with your creator been replaced by time with a religious leader? Who do you follow, really, Continuing on, Paul says, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why is though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So again, if you just hear Paul's tone, Paul is again upset with a group in the church. He is not a fan of a group in the church. And what is this group doing? Well, apparently there is a group in the church who are making a name for themselves by all of the things they would not do. All of their rules of things they would not participate in. And people in the church were a little confused. It's like, well, they seem so sincere. They seem so devout. They seem so passionate. They're, they're going to these extreme lengths to not do certain things. Maybe we should become more like them. Maybe we should be more devout like them. Maybe we should say no to all these things like them. And Paul says, no way. Why? Paul says that's a false, again, a false humility. Paul says all of the rules, all of the do nots, our legalistic religion, shadows of the real thing. And the real thing, again, is Christ dwelling in us. This group in the church, don't miss this, this group in the church was known for what they did not do, not for their personal relationship with Christ. You know, if we're not careful we as followers of Christ will start to be known for our list of what we're against rather than who we're for. Do you hear me on that? I think what Paul is getting at here is this. Following Christ is a way of living that focuses on what we're for and who we're serving, christ You know you've wandered off the path when you're more interested in pointing out people's faults than pointing them to Christ. Jesus said, and most of you know this, Jesus said, you as my followers will be known for how well you keep all the rules and make fun and put down people that don't. Oh wait, that's not what he said, is it? He said, you will be known People will know you are my followers with my spirit in you by the way that you love each other. By the way that you love each other. Now, now, John, does this mean that we just all kind of like get around the fire and sing kumbaya, let's love everyone, and we're just kind of wishy-washy, and we don't stand up for anything, and we just let evil go by and injustice go by? Is that what that means? No. No, absolutely not. No, we we stand up against injustice and we stand up against evil and we stand up for truth, but understand that we do it because we know our why. And our why will always be because Christ's love compels us to. Not because we want to be better than another group. Not because we want to seem holier than another group. No, our why will always be Christ's love in us compels us and that we want the world to see God's love reflected through our actions. So will we stand up against evil and injustice? Will we stand up for truth? Always. But it'll be because of our love. Let's be known for what we're for. Occasionally I talk to, uh, young people, uh, if you're new to Northbrook, um, I work with the student ministry, primarily 6th through 12th graders, and I've been doing that for about 15 years. And occasionally I'll talk to a student who is on their way out the door. They are leaving Christianity, they're leaving the faith, or they've already left. And, uh, what I've found is that arguing with them rarely does much. So instead I'll just ask questions, uh, with curiosity, genuine curiosity about why they're leaving. And almost every single time, what I find as I ask questions is what they're leaving is not the true Christian faith and a personal relationship with Jesus. What they're leaving is a list of do-nots that was handed down to them. And the more that I explore what they're leaving, I find that typically I- I'm not too surprised if that's what they think the Christian faith is all about. Now, hear my heart on this. Some of you may disagree with me on this. And if you do, I already said I'm not an angel. I'm not perfect. That's fine. But here's what I truly believe. Over the next 10, 20, 30 years, the generations coming up will not be excited to be a part of a church that is known for what it's against. The generations coming up will get excited and be a part of a church that is known for what it's for and the way that it loves the world. And church, we gotta decide what we wanna be known for. But I promise you, our actions will not just impact the world now. Our actions will impact future generations. And so my challenge to all of us as we close is let's be known for what we're for. Will we stand up against injustice and evil? Will we stand up for truth? Of course. But let's do it knowing why we're doing it. We're doing it because Christ's love compels us and we are for his goodness in the world. As we wrap up, I know i covered a lot of ground, so I want to leave you uh, with a few questions that sums up this message. And my prayer, my challenge to all of us is to think through one question this week. So the first question is do you slip into trying to earn something that you already have? Tomorrow, if you're honest, do you wake up trying to climb some spiritual ladder or attempting some 40-yard dash to impress God? Or do you wake up in the reality that it is draft day, it's draft party day, and you have already been chosen by God, and now you just get to live in that? Or secondly, have you replaced a relationship with God for a relationship with religious leaders? Maybe this week, instead of of listening or, or reading that book or listening to that podcast, and again, those are all wonderful things, but maybe this week... There's an opportunity to spend a little more time personally with your creator, meditating and growing in your relationship with him. Or lastly, my last question for you is what do you want to be known for? What do you want to be known for? Bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, I just, I thank you for your love and your goodness. I thank you that you've already done all the work, that you came, you lived, and you died for us, and that reality changes everything. May may we live out of the fullness of who you are. May we embrace every day as a holy day, every act is spiritual. And Father, as we live our lives, may we be known for the way we love. In Jesus' name, Amen.